Welcome, kindred spirits, to the History Chicks coverage of the Netflix series Anne with an E. This is episode three. I'm Beckett Graham. And I'm Susan Vollenweider. This episode of the show was called But What is So Headstrong as Youth? Again, it's a Jane Eyre quote by Charlotte Bronte. It's less about the plot of Jane Eyre this time than it was last time. This quote is from the part in Jane Eyre when Jane comes back to the Rochester house, believing Mr. R to be about to marry somebody else and desperately in love with him herself. So not much the story of Anne this episode, just an appropriate quote. But the whole thing, interestingly enough, is what is so headstrong as youth? What so blind as inexperience? And I think that last sentence, the hidden sentence of the quote is a little Easter egg for us because in fact, this show is all about being blind from inexperience. Oh, it is. We are subtitling this Transformations Um, because that's what this whole episode is about. I think time-wise in our year, we're recording this in spring. Lots of kids are graduating. It's just such a perfect way to look at them. It's like, oh, congratulations. Good for you. Go out in the world. But man, you have an uphill battle ahead of you. (laughs) But we keep that all to ourselves. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we do. We just say congratulations, put some money in a card. and Well, this episode was directed by Sandra Goldsbacher, who directed, among other things, The Governess with Minnie Driver, which is a movie with very strong ties to Jane Eyre thematically. Also, for our listeners, episodes of Victoria, the most recent miniseries about Queen Victoria that stars Jenna Coleman. I love Victoria. I thought it was such a pretty adaptation of her story. You know, um, The Governess, it starred Jonathan Rhys Myers as a very, it was a very young Jonathan Rhys Myers, but he was Henry VIII in The Tudors. I was like, who is that guy? And oh, I know who he is. And in addition, I love this. Sandra Goldbacher also directed a series of commercials. She did Absolute Vodka, Heavy and Water, Johnny Walker, and Bailey's. She's like a beverage director or something. Well, they did put milk in the stream in this one. So she continues her thematic, you know. (laughs) And it did look good. That's for sure. (laughs) So we begin with the cold open, which is Anne getting ready for school. So she's got a new dress. She's braiding her hair. She is getting all her supplies together. She has some books, Elsie's New Relations, which is a novel by Martha Finley. She has The Fifth Reader. She has some slate pencils and the famous slate. If you know anything about Anne of Green Gables, you know everything about this slate. It will become famous later. And put the whole thing together with a belt, you know, tie it together so she can carry it to school, which is so charming. This whole beginning was just a bunch of little vignettes that I just thought was just so beautiful and such a good representation of a little girl getting ready to go to school. However, I defy you, any listener with long enough hair, to try to braid your hair while you're looking in the mirror. It is nearly impossible. Your brain cannot process it. And so my only thought is maybe she's just making eye contact with Katie Maurice in the mirror and braiding blindly. (laughs) Maybe. Let's hope so, because that left braid just never seems to work out properly for her. She has to do it and redo it and redo it again. I don't know if it was nerves. I don't know if she saw something we didn't see in that braid because it looked fine to me. But I know a 13-year-old girl is going to you know, be overly critical. So Marilla calls her downstairs. It's time for breakfast. And while Anne is doing this constant 
positive self-talk, trying to get herself geared up and put that confidence into her. She comes downstairs and then she turns around halfway down and goes back up and she comes back again wearing a pinafore that she had forgotten to put on and says, I expect it's perfectly normal to be slightly nervous on your first day. I don't have much experience with school. I'm a few years behind, but that's no reason not to be optimistic. She has such great positive self-talk. And you know, she does say she's a few years behind. And in other L.M. Montgomery books, kids started at seven years of age. So she's really six years behind. And we'll see the little kids later and see how book accurate this is, i.e. not book accurate. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But Anne, I have to tell you during this whole scene is manic. Even for Anne, she's manic, but at least she's helping with the setup for breakfast as she's talking, 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 talking. I mean, she fills a room, man. Um, And then here's a key element. She breaks a teacup. And what a difference from before. Remember when she dropped the things before and she's like, nothing's broken, nothing's broken. And there was a panic stricken element to her voice. No, Eh, didn't even, uh, the teacup. What are you going to do? She just keeps talking. And so that to me says that she's super secure in her family setup now. She doesn't have to be afraid of a beating or them sending her away. She feels totally confident that these people love her and the teacup is just a casualty of the morning. And Marilla and Matthew's response to it too is an indicator of how far they've come since we last saw them in the last episode because they're pretty chill too. Matthew even helps her clean it up. I know. It's so cute. And I love his little, you're smart as the Dickens, he says, which is something that both me and my son say, which again, what century am I from? I have no idea. <laughs> hey, what was that? I, I can't read my handwriting. What did she say? Please don't let that be portentous. Oh my goodness. Don't let that be what my day is going to be like. (laughs) I have had many of those days like, oh, really? I've dropped my coffee on my sweater. Okay. Okay. Monday. I see. I see how it's going to be. I poured coffee in my Cheerios this morning. So I know exactly how that is. (laughs) Anne is more worried about fitting in socially. And I think that's what every child's worried about. And every grown up is worried about. You show up at a new office, you can always learn the software. Or if you're in school, the math book is going to explain itself or not. But who am I going to sit with at lunch? How's it going to be? Will I have friends? Will people like me? Will I be weird? Do I look like everyone else? And that's just the universal fear. And poor little Anne seems to have it worse than anyone. Because if you think about it, she's never really been with a whole bunch of children who may be her friends, except for those mean girls in the orphanage that tried to make her eat a mouse. Not a good place to learn your social skills and your social cues, that's for sure. But Anne kind of distills her whole fear into this horrible, horrible red hair, to which Marilla responds, you're a vain one and no mistake, and they keep letting this stand. And it is book accurate. Anne does say this in the book. How can I be vain when I'm so ugly? I frankly think she is delightful. And very cute. I don't think she's ugly at all. I know we're supposed to, you know, regard her as not attractive, but I really don't. Well, if you're just watching this version, she's not conventionally attractive. If you're watching any of the other versions, to have her say that she's ugly is ridiculous. And then she says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. But that's not what she says. That's from Romeo and Juliet, which is, I think, Where she got this, and it's sitting in her mind somewhere, she said that if a rose was ugly, no one would want to smell it. (laughs) Which suits her purposes, but is really not the right quote. But I really think we can add Romeo and Juliet to the reading list based on that quote. 
I've decided to adopt Marilla's common sense approach to someone freaking out. Stop your yammering and fortify yourself. Good. Feed away your feelings. <laughs> and Matthew says, not one thing. Not <laughs> one thing. During the entirety of the actual breakfast, does he say a word? So I was wondering how that table read was for that actor. He might as well have drunk his whole latte just sitting there because he didn't have to say anything. His face said a lot. Especially when Marilla and Matthew watch Anne go to school. There's a lovely aerial shot of the red dirt and the green fields and little Anne and her hat and the white fences. And they look at each other and they are super nervous now because if you think about it, they are sending an extremely unconventional soul into convention, I have to say. And it's an unconventional soul that they love dearly. They know a little bit about what she's about to walk into and the struggles that she is completely unaware of, which again, so blind is an experience, but it's also fall now. So we've gone through the whole summer. That's when they mellowed out, I guess. And they be blended together as a, you know, a family unit. Cause the last time we saw them, it was summertime. And I have to say that aerial shot that you just talked about, it was gorgeous. It was indeed scenery porn. People have been writing to us and saying, you know, oh, scenery porn, that's so accurate. It's not me. I stole it from uh, TV Tropes. There you go. I love that site. I know, me too. So now we reach the opening credits. And listener Allison S. reminded us that the reason this farewell tour of The Tragically Hip is getting such passionate attendance is that the lead singer, a man named Gord Downey, is suffering from terminal brain cancer. And so this tour is really a farewell tour to someone they love with all their hearts. After we got that note, I was like, all right, what is it? What is it about this band? So I fell into a total tragically hip rabbit hole, which was a lovely place to be. And I became a fan. You know, they had 22 years of albums. It's crazy to me. And uh, Gord Downey, his last project was a solo album, a graphic novel, and an animated film honoring the memory of up to 30,000 First Nation children who died at residential schools. There was this one boy that died that just touched the nation's heart. And this whole project is directed at him, but he's representative of all of these kids. And oh my gosh, I became such a tragically hip fan. I bought the albums, I put them on my phone, I've been listening to them. Love it, love it. So I thank you, Canada. So the name tragically hip is from officially two places. Here's the one I remembered. I had a vague memory in the last episode that I had heard tragically hip before and I found it. Elvis Costello has a song called Town Crier from 1982 that has the following lines. Other boys use the splendor of their trembling lip. They're so teddy bear tender and tragically hip. Yes. That's where I heard it first. And then a skit from a late night comedy show hosted by Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. Okay. I love that so much. <laughs> the show was called Elephant Parts, and the name came out of a commercial parody in which viewers were encouraged to, quote, send some money to the foundation for the tragically hip. And we can link you to the video, but... One of the lines is, Bobby is tragically hip. He doesn't know why he says, call my service to grandma on the phone. Why he must have Perrier, natural sandwiches, jogging shoes, and promotional t-shirts. Wait, promotional t-shirts are, are tragically hip? It's 1982. Okay, but then I guess it would be retro, right? So go to the History Chicks shop and buy your History Chicks t-shirt and be tragically hip. I guess while drinking Perrier and eating a natural sandwich. 
<laughs> yeah. So Anne is practicing what I'm going to call her friendship lines in the woods on the way to school. She is practically skipping greetings. No, oh, no salutations. Oh, your dress is splendid. And the whole time she's talking, she's putting flowers all over her hat brim. And her innocence here is just so touching. She seems like she is about five or six years old to me. Oh, I know. She's so cute. I just would love to her to stay that way. But all of us, even if you haven't read the books, realize that something's coming up at school that she's not going to feel the way she does right now. Actually, it's probably our own experiences, right? She did say, as one of her friendship lines, I've traveled widely. It gives one a worldly perspective, which will come back to haunt her later in this episode. We don't even have to wait for the repercussions of that situation. And then, woo, she's sort of a nerd explaining what a bower is. You know what? That is the story of my life. And, you know, be prepared to meet some muggles information wise. (laughs) I'm just telling you, not everyone is going to be that interested. (laughs) I'm so sad. Uh, She feels so beautiful with these cockamamie flowers all over her head. And I love it so much. So in the book, she does this going to church. But honestly, it's kind of six of one. I think, you know, her little face. I just I just want to save this mood right here and put it over her like a little blanket. No, me too. Me too. And you know what's funny about this? What what reminded me of this? So I don't know if you've seen the movie 16 Candles, but there is a scene when Andy, played by Molly Ringwald, is sitting out in the hall trying to decide what on earth she's going to say to Jake, the man of her dreams. And she's practicing assorted lines. And then she says the sentence, I had a dream and you were in it. And then she snaps her fingers like exactly and confidently goes into the dance. And this is exactly what I'm thinking is happening with Anne. (laughs) Yeah. Have I seen 16 candles, please? And you know what? There's another redhead awkwardly going into a social situation. Hmm. Is that about redheads? I don't know. Is this a stereotype that's perpetuating through media? Wow. That's a sophisticated thought, Susan. Good for you. Pat back. I don't know, though, because then you have Bodica and uh, what's her name with the arrows, Merida. I don't know. I think it's half and half. Oh, yeah. I know. And we are going to cover Bodica at some point. So in the schoolroom, Anne meets new friends and frenemies. And Diana shows her the ropes. And so when Anne and us, the viewer, goes in, it seems like it's the first day back for everybody. You know, a new school term and everyone's running around crazy. You know, the girls are all hugging like they do. And... Anne is very lucky and relieved to see her friend Diana, who I'm so glad she had someone because she looks so nervous. And Diana really does a good job of being, I guess I have to call it the hostess, but she is super concernicus about her hat. What have you done with your hat? And Anne says, I wanted to make a good first impression. And Diana kind of mutters, oh, you're making an impression, all right. And then Diana says something that is meant kindly, but really comes as a great blow. And sometimes it's the nicest things people say that hurt the most. And she said, I'm sure it won't be long until my parents accept you now that you're a Cuthbert. Evidently, Diana has not been allowed to walk to school or back with Anne. And that, ouch, like Anne did not even know that was to be worried about. Like she hadn't factored that in at all. And it kind of struck her like, oh, I... Oh, and you could almost see her, you know, mentally straightening her hair like you do when you're super uncomfortable. But Diana cleverly, cleverly gets rid of Anne's hat by showing her where you leave your hat. Yeah. (laughs) She's very smooth. I think so. And I think the way you just described her as a hostess is so accurate because she's like the conduit between Anne 
in the real world of school. Well, first up, we meet Moody Spurgeon McPherson and Charlie Sloan, who was way cuter than I imagined, by the way. So (laughs) hooray. And you might think, well, was this even relevant? Was this even important? They do come up if the series goes on. They do come up later. Those are the two other gentlemen from this village that go to college with Anne. So they do, especially Charlie Sloan, play an important part later in the story. Are they ever going to get to that point? I don't really know. I think that the plan was just to get through the first book with a few seasons. Well, I guess what I have to say, it could be like when in Harry Potter, the directors are going to eliminate Dobby, the house elf. Just too much CGI, too much trouble. It's, you know, we got to hire a whole other crew of guys for this. And the author said, look, he's important in book seven. So if you haven't introduced him early, you're going to have a big task on your hands by the time you get to that later movie. So from my head to you, you might want to include him. And I don't know if that was a little insurance with Moody Spurgeon and Charlie Sloan or not, but. Hey, I do want to interject this before it flies out of my brain. I'm going to link you guys up to uh, Amy Beth McNulty's Twitter page. She has some super, super adorable videos of her in the cast. And there's one where Moody, the kid that plays Moody is like the only guy in the gaggle of girls and they're all singing Hamilton. Like, I know it's super, it's like, you know, my name is Alexander Hamilton. You know, that whole part, it was absolutely adorable. So you should totally go check her out because she has some great behind the scenes pictures and video. So Anne is told, don't talk to the boys. They're ridiculous. And those two boys remind me so much of my son and his friends. They're just at this weird age where they're all about, let's see if we can get him to talk to us. But they don't like like them or they're deluding themselves that they don't like like them. They look at them. Next time you watch this scene, watch the boys. They are so derpy and it is really <laughs> cute. Yeah. They sure are. And that is exactly how a 12-year-old boy would act. Yes. As I have one in my house. And me too. (laughs) So, yeah. So we get the info that Gilbert Blythe is dreamy, but he won't be here. So that's too bad for everyone concerned. We meet Jane Andrews. We meet Tilly Bolter. We meet Ruby Gillis and Josie Pye. Hiss. That's the sound of me hissing back here. (laughs) Josie Pye. Jane Andrews' mother, evidently, wouldn't let her say hi to Anne at the picnic. There's another blow. Like, oh, my God. Josie Pye mocks Anne's old lady dress and is a full on, which she was in the book, too, lest we forget. At least Tilly and Ruby try to be nice. They're super patronizing, but they try to be nice. And then we meet Billy Andrews, or should we say Draco Malfoy with his two stupid friends who thinks it is super hilarious to bark at Anne. And I have to tell you, I'm sick of him. (laughs) You've only seen him on screen here for just a moment. And already it's like, no, back away, Bob. Yeah, he's not a nice guy at all. But that's not exactly how he was in the books. He was like a lummox in the books. He wasn't mean. He was just like a, almost like a bumbling doofus. Yeah. And here he's like full on bully. Yeah. And I guess you need an antagonist, maybe. Uh, But Billy Andrews has transformed in character from the books. And Anne admits school is going to be more complicated than I thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) No, Anne is going to be ridiculous. I thought, you know what, linguistically, I thought that was interesting. I wondered if the boys are ridiculous, like the first time it was said in this scene, like the whole school thing, if it was introducing the word to the society because it catches on. You know, like words do trendy. Oh, like current school house slang. 
Yeah. Maybe. Well, Josie Pie began. <laughs> Did you go to special orphan school? You know what? I want to meet her mother. And I wrote, Josie Pie is all of the Heathers. And I really, really hope I don't have to explain that reference. No, I hope you don't too, because that would make me really sad. So just Google it if you don't know. Um, they also reminded me a lot of the plastics, you know, from Mean Girls. There was a Regina, there was a Gretchen, there's a Karen. And then again, there's the redheaded Katie, you know, who's kind of kooky, different, unconventionally educated, who comes into the mix and has to learn to survive in that society. And did I mention she's redheaded? Again, is this <laughs> perpetuating in media? The next thing we're going to see is two very fancy dressed ladies knocking on the door of Green Gables. Now this scene, none of this is in the book at all. I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. So just roll with it is all I'm going to say. And, you know, for anybody who is wondering, you know, what's what's book canon, what's not, uh, Anne of Green Gables is in the public domain. So it's on LibriVox and we'll get you a link in the show notes. So you can listen to it for nothing. Marilla could not be more surprised to see two fancy ladies at the front door if kangaroos were standing there, it seems like. I mean, Green Gables is very out of the way. They've come on purpose. And so I would say that is a natural assumption that they are soliciting for charity because who else is going to come all this way? But no, they have a different plan. Marilla at first thinks they're there to get money that they're collecting. And she's like, let me get my purse. I'll get some money for you. And they're like, oh, no, no. They come and they ask Marilla to a progressive mother's sewing circle. So we learn this is Mrs. Andrews, the one who wouldn't let her daughter speak to Anne at the picnic. She's the one who was looking around approvingly at the nice, clean farm a second ago. She seemed to really uh, approve of what she was seeing, like it's up to her. And it's Mrs. Bell from church. What do you know? So, no, the Progressive Mother's Sewing Circle wants to invite Marilla to their next meeting to talk about the education of their daughters and do needlepoint, of course, and have tea like ladies. But then they say the words, now that you're mother to a young girl, and that phrase blows Marilla away. I, I don't think she hears another thing for real after they say that word, because it really seems to have not occurred to her that Marilla is acting as a mother figure to Anne. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's been doing the work, but she never really thought of herself as mother. That's her transition in this episode, right? Yeah. Well, the ladies go on to say our views are radical. We believe that a woman's education is just as important as a man's. And so that's as radical as they're getting. <laughs> well, for the times, that was radical. That was. So Diana continues the tour back at school and explains the social circles at school, which is very complicated. Uh, you know, I usually sit by so-and-so unless so-and-so and so-and-so aren't talking. You'll have to just observe the situation and react accordingly. Uh, uh, it's a little overwhelming, I think, um, especially since Dog Boy is still barking out the window. You know what? Somebody give him a smack. Dog boy, whose mother was just at Marilla's house, by the way. Do you think his mother knows how he is? Because I'm guessing no. With her, I, yeah. she's one of these people for whom their children never do any wrong, I think. Mm -mm -mm. And their children are very good at hiding that side of themselves in front of mom. She has no idea. So Diana points out the creek where everyone leaves their milk. So it's nice and cold. They've got these uh, canning jars full of milk that they leave there. It's pretty cute. That's one of the details that the writer of the series, Moira Wally Beckett, she had the schoolhouse built and she had that little creek, which kind of looks a little bit more to me like a puddle, like a really big puddle. But it was so important to her to keep that detail 
from the book series in this particular interpretation of her story. So the rules of lunch evidently are we all sit together in our clubhouse. No boys allowed. Like we already knew that one. Mm -hmm. There is a seating arrangement that changes based on reasons. Be careful. And we divide and share our lunches. I hope you brought your apple slice for sharing, she says. Like, oh, um, Anne was not prepared for this. This was nowhere in her scenario in the woods. Okay. So we see on our tour, the little kid classroom, the room in the back for the youngsters, where it looks like four-year-olds are doing long division. Seems weird. I And not sitting girls on one side, boys on the other, like the big kids are. And all I can think of is that maybe this is a way to get in two things. Um, number one, there's a cameo. The teacher is an actor from the famous Canadian series, long-running, much-beloved series, Road to Avonlea. And so... There's your little Easter egg cameo of, of that guy. And also a stark reminder of how far behind Anne really is. Like the contrast between Anne and the little four-year-olds who are doing long division. Anne says, what kind of sums are those? She's never seen that before. To which Diana responds, so easy, right? Those were the days. So I think that's a, a way to kind of emphasize that, oh no, you thought you were going to be able to catch up look how far behind you are. Okay, let's go back to your theory about it setting this stage for future episodes of this show, future series, whatever. There's two teachers in this school. And in the books, there's only one. And that particular situation causes quite the drama later on, right? I, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> I'm walking a fine line here. But having only one teacher in the Avonlea school is critical at a certain juncture after college were two of the main characters in this particular story. That was me not spoiling. Hmm, interesting. How will they get around that? Maybe they won't. Mm -hmm. So now we look into the supply room where haha, Mr. Phillips sometimes takes a nap. Oh, does he? Guess what else he does in there? It's Mr. Phillips and one of the older female students having a moment. He's touching her hair and her hand and Anne says, they must be making a baby. If they're touching, they must be having intimate relations. Lots of husbands have a pet mouse, she goes on, that they keep in their front pants pocket. I suspect Prissy Andrews has made its acquaintance. But, like, look at her face, though. She is saying this in total innocence, right? She's not trying to be, you know, a scandal monger. She's not trying to shock anybody, do you think? No, 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 no. She's just having a conversation with Diana. It's like, oh, I know what they're doing. Hmm. And I do want to point out, this is Prissy Andrews, sister of Billy Andrews, daughter of Mrs. Andrews, that is a member of the Progressive Women's Sewing Circle. Does Mrs. Andrews know anything about her daughter, Prissy, I'm wondering? And this man, Mr. Phillips, is based on a teacher who I swear is named Mr. Mustard that the author L.M. Montgomery had as a 16-year-old and who showed her inappropriate attention to the point of calling at her house every evening and, in fact, proposing marriage to her. So this uncomfortable feeling that you're feeling later between Mr. Phillips and uh, his 16-year-old student is based on reality. You know, I was wondering what the actor who plays Mr. Phillips looked like. His name is Stephen Tracy. He's actually also a model and in no other pictures did I see him with that mustache. So well, thank goodness for that. Yeah, I know. He looks like that guy from Dudley Do-Right. He was the evil guy. He's the villain. And he's always, you know, tying people to the train tracks. And Dudley Do-Right has to come and save the day. Oh, yeah. I 
was going to say, he reminds me of one of those melodramas. You go to the the reenactments of the Wild West or whatever, and then if you go mm-hmm. to the theater, you're always like, no, 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 yes, 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 you mm-hmm. must pay the rent. I can't pay the rent. Like that guy, that villain, yeah. that's who he looks like. You're right. Yeah, well, this is even better because Dudley Do-Right is from Canada. Well, we can blame Anne's knowledge, shall we say, on Mrs. Hammond, because Mrs. Hammond evidently always had twins, says Anne, after she pet Mr. Hammond's mouse. My son is 12 years old, and he has a friend who has been told and still believes at 12 that people just get babies at the hospital like a store. So some people leave this discussion way too late, let me just say. But in the 1890s, girls especially were often told the real deal right before they got married or found out via practical, shall I say, or the (laughs) laboratory class, um, hands-on version of class, let's say. (laughs) Hold on. Hands-on with the mouse. Hold on. Laughing. Okay. I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to link you to a website called Miss Abigail's Time Warp Advice. It's from a publication that this person found called The Daughter from 1891. And I quote, Let us remember how large a portion of human misery results from the disorderly animal passion. Much of this should be withheld from the knowledge of the young. Oh, okay. Well, clearly that's the advice that your son's friend's parents followed. I don't want to be critical of another parent. I really don't. But You do realize, other parent, that your kid is going to pick it up at school if they haven't already. So Anne gives Diana a little sex ad class. And then we move into the schoolroom where Mr. Phillips is mean for apparently no reason. He gives a spelling word ravishing while he looks at Prissy Andrews, which is the grossest, creepiest thing ever. Whatever. Word Mm -hmm. is spreading about Prissy on the girl's side, by the way, if you watch the whispering going back and forth. Intimate relations, making a baby, pet mouse. I don't know what they're talking about, but they're talking about Prissy Andrews and the teacher. So Anne stands up and corrects Moody, who is desperately trying to spell a word in chalk on the blackboard. The A is silent, she says, hopefully. You know, she's never been to school before. Not really. And then Mr. Phillips says, silent, like you should be. Did I call on you? And really takes her down for being eager to participate in class. He also called her the orphan. Oh my God. So in addition to being a cartoon villain from a melodrama, he has a lot of characteristics very, very similar to our favorite professor, Professor Snape. Mean for no reason. It's not good. Well, let's set off with Marilla for the mother's meeting. And Marilla and Matthew realize that their parents, it's really hitting them both. I never thought about it that way. (laughs) It's like, oh, I know Marilla is so nervous. She does a better job in society than Matthew does. But that's not a very high bar. I'm telling you right now. Even she in company has a lot of shy qualities about her. We just haven't had the opportunity to see it before. Yeah, I was I think of her as being very reserved and comfortable with how she's reacted to things in the past. You know, she's like women of a certain age. And I hope I am of that age where I don't really care what people think when I say something. But in this particular scene, she is just fussing about kind of like Anne did that morning in preparation to going to this sewing circle meeting. So back at school, it's lunchtime and Anne is about to continue the sex education with all the friends. The girls have made a little fort in the corner with a shawl and they want to know about the shocking pet mouse. They they can't believe it. They want to know all about it. And honestly, I think Anne is really thinking it's a literal mouse. Do you think so? Oh, yeah. Diana does, too. Both of those girls literally think there's a mouse in his pocket, I think. But the others 
seem to understand that it's a euphemism. So do they all have brothers? Because Diana doesn't. All right. And Ruby Gillis in the books has a lot of sisters that are all really beautiful. Maybe she has a brother, too. I don't know. We don't know about her brother. But they seem to know that this pet mouse is not a pet mouse and what it actually is. So Anne goes on, goes on, goes on. And she's sort of, I think, proud that she has something to say that they're interested in. Everybody's leaning forward. They can't believe it. They're asking questions. And at first, everyone seems so giggly and So I'm watching and watching and watching to see when the mood changes, like when Anne has gone too far. Notably, if you look around, Jane Andrews, sister of Prissy Andrews, is not in the clubhouse for some reason. Yeah. What did she do to get kicked out? Because she was just there a couple hours ago. I think that's narrative economy. Like you don't have to explain that Jane got told about her sister to her face or whatever, I think. There is a reference to Frankenstein's monster, if we want to add Mary Shelley to the reading list. Um, So things started to change when Anne went into drunkenness and spousal rape. Mm -hmm. That's when the humor left the building. It wasn't fun anymore. Talking about life with the Hammonds is what she was saying. Just shines a little more light on the horrific experiences she had while she was with them, you know. But I have to say, Diana really started off with the best intentions. She thought, aha, here's a way to get these girls to respect Anne because Anne is an authority on this subject. They're going to love her as much as I do. It's just going to take the right trick and this might be it. It went so bad that Josie Pye started to pack up all her things and so did everyone else. I won't eat next to dirty trash. And they even, if you notice, take the clubhouse down on the way out to emphasize that she is not in the club anymore. And Diana tries to go salvage the situation and Anne is just full of regret and look at her bewilderment. She does not know what has just happened. I did not see one sign of slyness or intrigue in her voice. She was just saying how it was, which to her must be, you know, just how it is. And she doesn't understand what happened. It was all going so well. I was part of a group and then suddenly I was not and I don't know what I did. Yeah, I know. I know. The things that she's experiencing that really are the horrible things of classroom, she never, even in her imagination, could have come up with. Not at all. And Diana just, she just has Anne's back so much, but she goes off with the girls right away instead of sitting and comforting Anne, trying to explain what's going on. She's like, let me just try to fix this. You know, like, I'll come back to you. And she takes off with the girls. I don't, she wasn't leaving her on purpose that quickly to side with the girls, but rather she was, let me see if I can fix this. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all she could do. So now we are at the meeting and this is where you're seeing the Victorian uh, fanciness and fripperies, the nice environment that you're missing from that 80s movie of Anne. Um, So you've got the glass globes, you've got all the ferns. For some reason, you have roses. I'm wondering if they're silk or artificial in some way because I don't, I think it's way too late in the year for roses. Yeah. The ladies note the absence of Diana's mother, who's obviously a traditionalist. So Diana's mother is not in the progressive social circle. The ladies are discussing the book The Grasshoppers by Mrs. Andrew Dean. Okay, wait a second. We're progressive mothers and we are a sewing circle and we have tea and we're also a book club. This is like one stop social shopping right here. All my book clubs have all turned into wine clubs. To say you're going to book club is kind of a euphemism. So this book, I have to tell you, is sort of shockingly amoral. But what I am seeing as an Avonlea social standard, it's similar to what? Vanity Fair, I would say. One woman's 
infidelity and quest to better herself by being free or something. Just so radical for the times. Mrs. Andrew Jean, the author, you can't imagine that someone from our where we're standing would call themselves Mrs. Andrew Dean and write a progressive feminist book. You know what I mean? It's actually the surname for Cicely Wilhelmine Sidgwick. She was a British author who wrote 41 novels, and I'm embarrassed to say I had never heard of her. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, people just fall out of fashion, you know. I, I know, but still, you know, you write 41 novels. You think you're going to be remembered. So, yes, speaking of feminist, they hit this on the nose too hard for me. And they actually lost half a point for this where she said feminism. What an incredible word. Are we witnessing the birth of feminism in the progressive social mother circle or whatever? No, I don't think so. But they did say good for you for choosing a girl, Miss Cuthbert. To which Marilla keeps to herself the accident. You're not going to air the dirty laundry about, oh, no, it was a mistake and we sent her back and all that. So she's getting praise for the accident. Maybe she'll be a teacher. Maybe. Marilla had never thought about that before. You just see the new ideas dawning on Marilla's face this whole, whole time. And one of the moms, this reminds me of PTA moms, by the way, says, we must improve our curriculum, especially for those who are unlikely to marry. And she looks right at Marilla, the cattiest of catty looks. Oh, I know. Oh, it's like, excuse me, Marilla, would you come a little closer so I can punch you in the gut? Who says that? You're just talking about feminism. You're talking about, you know, being the bonds of sisterhood. And now you're going to cut down one of your own. They did talk about a relative who had gone to Acadia University. They graduated their first woman in 1879. So this whole situation of women being able to go to college, college, But a lot Mm -hmm. of women only went to eighth grade. That is radical. That is progressive. It's only 11 years back from this meeting. So think about how exciting that is to realize that's a possibility for your daughters. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting, especially for your daughters who aren't likely to marry. Are you sure you're not Josie Pye's mom? (laughs) That would make sense, man. Are they all like this deep down? I wonder. I think that was Mrs. Andrews that was saying that. Mrs. Andrews, whose daughter, Prissy, is studying for the entrance exams to college. That's her extra credit tutoring that she's getting from Mr. Phillips. Is that what the kids are calling it? Tutoring? Crazy. So at school, Anne is shunned. Is She is shunned. But Diana does prove faithful. And Anne and Diana walk to the crossroads. <laughs> you can just smell the leaves, by the way. It, and the wet. It is such a beautiful picture. But Diana <laughs> says, talk less. No mice. (laughs) I loved that. But I do want to note that Diana is defying her mother to walk home with Anne to the crossroads. So Diana has some grit and she has some faithfulness. So she's not supposed to walk home with Anne and she does. So you know what? I really like Diana a lot as a friend. Anne says, tomorrow is a day with no mistakes in it yet. (laughs) What a great, there's a tattoo for you. (laughs) Another thing that Diana has is this amazing little capelet. I'm like on this capelet obsession right now. I saw this character wearing one in uh, Master of None on Netflix. But all the girls had capelets on in the classroom. And Anne had that sweater, you know, the comfortable warm sweater on my favorite sweater of all time is a long sweater like that that has pockets and of course my husband mocks it every day and calls it my granny sweater so i'm (laughs) going to start putting tissues up my arm i have that sweater too mine is from the 80s and it was from um what was that women's clothing store express 
No. Uh, no, Esprit. That's it. Esprit. Oh. Black with these huge flowers on it and pockets. It's like, I'm sick. I'm going to wear this sweater. And my husband can't stand it. Oh, mine is full granny. Mine would not be out of place in the costume department of Anne with an E. Oh, we should put pictures of them on there. <laughs> Notice and observe with my great approval that this Anne, as she looks up to the sky, has gray eyes. To which I clap because book <laughs> Anne also has gray eyes. I'm pleased with this Anne every dang second I see her on the screen. And the fact that she has gray eyes, I'm like, check. Mm -hmm. Sold. Mrs. Lynde and Marilla, back at the house, are disagreeing about that meeting Marilla has just gone to. Mrs. Lynde still wants to know all about it because she's the minister of information. She tries to rope Matthew into supporting her. And Matthew's like, I'm not in it. I'm packing up my lunch. I'll be eating in the barn, <laughs> which I love. So Matthew won't be drawn. He says, I reckon every new idea was modern once until it wasn't. I love that. He got the word in and then he got out of there. Wise man. <laughs> I'm mystified by you, says Mrs. Lynde. You know, Marilla Cuthbert, suffragette. My favorite line of this whole episode. Did you all burn your corsets and dance naked at the town hall? The look on Marilla's face when she turns around and says, we ran out of time. It's just perfection. Yeah, Marilla gets some really great, you know, dry humor lines in this show. I, I love that. I like the relationship between Marilla and Rachel. It's so real. I think this is Grace and Frankie 1890. <laughs> yeah. It is so good. There's so much I hadn't thought about before, says Marilla. Like, what if I'm not equal to the task? And this, to me, seems like Ellen Montgomery's grandma. Um, she had a grandma who didn't really understand why Mon Montgomery wanted to go to college. She doesn't understand it. The world is moving too fast. But she gave her the money and the support to go do it. I don't know. I never thought about college before. Becoming a teacher, didn't know that was a thing. Uh, there's all this stuff I have to think about now and I want to be supportive, but I really am out of my depth. And that's kind of Marilla's point right now. Marilla's dress in this scene, by the way, is cut and sewn identically to Anne's new one. Different fabric, but same exact style. So earlier when Josie Pye says, did they make you wear that old lady dress? Evidently it is cut like an old lady dress. <laughs> I know. But she's got that belt, that leather belt that she wears all the time. It's like wide and then like a thin part in the middle. It's hard to describe. Oh, like a cummerbund kind of. Kind of, yes. Yeah, I think I had one from... Um, Abercrombie and Fitch or something from back in the day. It was like that. I love that belt. It was really, it was a thick leather belt with like this small detail on it. Wow. I am just fashion obsessed. If you could see me right now, you would wonder why. <laughs> I'm just cracking up that you were super mall 80s and I was thrift store 80s. Yeah. And, and malls, what the heck is a mall? Do they even exist anymore? So Anne breezes home and she is actually nice to Jerry on the way home. She is pretending to be happy about school. She's decided not to share what happened. She's going to keep it all to herself. And God, it was bad. It was horrible. Like what expectations she had and what expectations didn't get fulfilled. But Rachel and Marilla are continuing their argument about parenting, about progress. And well, I had 10 children. I should know blah, blah, blah. And Anne passes through and changes the atmosphere between the two ladies almost immediately when she says, the two of you are such an inspiration. Friends since school days, how do you do it? And they look at each other and really the mood is mended. Don't you think? Oh, definitely. It was like, blah, 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 blah. Then she comes in and then it was all huggy, huggy. Just another incidence of Anne 
as my theory says, being the one who changes other people. She even passes through a scene and changes it. She doesn't even stay. I'm going to go upstairs and change and I'll be down to help with supper, as she says. And so she fixes the scene downstairs, but upstairs, she's all by herself and she flops on her bed. I know. She put on such a good, happy face. And I do believe part of that was relief that she wasn't in school anymore, but she was back on familiar turf with familiar people who she know loved her. And, um, but when she goes upstairs, like the realization of not only the social situation at school, but how far behind she is academically, it all hits her. I know. She tries to teach herself long division. She says it must be backwards multiplication. I, do you learn it in fourth grade? Long division. I know you don't learn it when you're four. I'm telling you right no. now. Uh, no. But fourth grade, maybe. So maybe her thought of being three years behind is about right. For real. Yeah. So it's morning time. Another rooster I wrote just for Susan. Thank you. <laughs> Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> She's getting ready more sadly than yesterday, for sure. And then Anne tells her best confidant on the premises, who is the horse, her affirmations for the day, which include, I'm not going to say anything weird. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Jerry has to put in his two cents. He works in the barn. I don't know where Anne thinks he is. She (laughs) thinks he's lurking around just to mess with her, but he's literally shoveling poo in the barn at all times. That's like his whole life. She gets mad at him and says, you shouldn't eavesdrop, Jerry. He has no idea what that word means, but she takes off. I kind of I'm torn about the scenes between Jerry and Anne. I do think that they're very much like a brother and a sister relationship. You know, they're always knocking each other. And But then the other side of me is thinking, are the writers just trying to smack us upside the head by the fact that Jerry is the boy that they originally wanted to adopt and Anne is the progressive getting an education girl that they never knew could exist. You know, we talked about wanting to know what happened to the kid that didn't come, that was not taken out of the orphanage by mistake, by Mrs. Spencer. You know, whatever happened to that kid who continued to grow up in the orphanage and how his life would have been changed by coming to a farm, inheriting a farm, being able to go to school, all the Mm -hmm. things that he never knew he just missed out on because Mrs. Spencer was a dodo. (laughs) well it wasn't mrs spencer's fault remember she was told by the you know the daughter i think that was just flighty nancy yeah that's it so anne is walking to school quoting jane Eyre to herself uh, something about you know i'm paraphrasing life is too short to fill it full of regret and good affirmation for the day and she is i guess i'm just gonna say attacked and menaced by billy andrews in a very disturbing scene. He is going to attack her on behalf of his sister, he says, but his rage seems like he is just grateful he has an excuse to do something he's wanted to do all along. But what is that? And I don't like this. I know. Yeah, no, I agree with you on the second part. He's just using his sister situation, you know, being the subject of gossip now about her relationship with Mr. Phillips as an excuse to let loose with his whatever it is that's driving this anger in him. And it makes me wonder, what is driving that anger? I don't know, man. I don't know. But he was so scary to me. And I was not very happy with this scene at all. Gilbert arrives, the famous Gilbert, who we thought we weren't going to see. Here he is. What a surprise. He arrives back from wherever he's been. And he has a worried 
slash casual look. He doesn't want to get in anyone's face, but he doesn't want this to continue like we don't. So thank goodness Gilbert's there for us also to make this go away. He kind of diverts Billy's attention and sends him on his way to school. And Anne is much relieved by that pressure being taken off and starts taking off too. And um, Gilbert says, any dragons around here need slaying? No, thank you, she says. And I wish they'd left it at that because that is super cute. Can I do anything else for you in the manner of, you know, knight and shining armor? You know, thank you. <laughs> that would have been a great place to leave it. But instead, he keeps pursuing, pursuing, pursuing her and um, badgering her. And it's another sort of unwelcome attention. And I kind of wish that they had left that part out. It's just as upsetting, I think. Um, I think it's nice to note that this is Gilbert not reading social cues properly. Like a 13-year-old boy would not do, you know, they'd be all cocky and I'm center of the world. I just saved you and go after her waiting for a response. He's very popular with the girls. And um, suddenly there's a person that's kind of snubbing him, which is just crazy. And I wonder, (laughs) I'm sure we'll hear from them, the people that are just dead set on the original Gilbert, um, Jonathan Crombie as being the Gilbert, what they think of this particular Gilbert, because I love him more. I never really cared for the original one. I thought he was just too kind of sappy, I think is a good word. But I can see how he would appeal to people who like the sweeter version. But the actor, Jonathan Crombie, died in 2015 at the age of 48 from a brain hemorrhage. He had beat out Jason Priestley for the part originally, which I thought was lovely. (laughs) uh, Two, you know, converging teen stars, right? Is Jason Priestley Canadian? Pardon my ignorance. I don't know. Yeah, I thought he was. Oh, good. We'll be corrected if we're wrong. But yeah, I thought he was. Um, The last project that Jonathan worked on in his life was an Indiegogo-funded documentary called Waiting for Ishtar, A Love Letter to the Most Misunderstood Movie of All Time. <laughs> and I'll put a link for it in the show notes. But essentially, it's it's about people who are on the wait list at a library waiting for a copy of Ishtar, finding out who they were, which I thought it was great. So um, we'll put a link to that. And that was his last project. That reminds me, such a niche show. It reminds me of that show, Looking for McDonald's pepperoni pizza or something like that. <laughs> like the weirdest, tiniest little thing. That's so hilarious. I'm glad. Okay. I'm, I'm excited to see his, uh, his viewpoint on that, I guess. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I like the way that this actor plays Gilbert with a lot of subtlety and more like a real kid than like a character in a book. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that. He's very good. He's freaking adorable. So Gilbert and Anne arrive at school at about the same time. He opens the door for her. He's a gentleman. Well, his arrival is a big hit and the Anne slander is widespread. And I really think Gilbert appearing behind her has saved her some real bad side eye because everyone immediately screams, Gilbert, and all the dudes have to come over and clap him on the back and all the girls have to bat their eyelashes. And so I think Anne has escaped the initial coldness of the morning. So he saved her from that, too, although she's not going to thank him for that either by the way and so one of the boys says to gilbert why were you walking with that orphan girl by which you can tell Anne's been the subject of conversation all morning and then gilbert who hasn't been there of course says a cute girl's a cute girl which is kind of gross and you know bro like but in fact is better than what they're acting like so yeah and it's going to totally uh derail their thought for a second like oh wait a second Gilbert likes her as a person? I hadn't thought of her that way. 
you know? The whole plot of Can't Buy Me Love. <laughs> Speaking of 80s movies. <laughs> well, while the boys are having this, you know, oh, transformation, the girls march out behind Anne. She's gone outside to put her lunch back into the creek, her milk anyway. And they give her the 411 on this situation. Do not talk to Gilbert Blythe. Ruby has liked him for three years. She has dibs. Yeah, you know, I wondered, I thought that sounded like a really modern word, you know, like maybe like 1940s, maybe. It's not. It went back to the 1800s, which makes it kind of a trendy word for their time. It's from Dibstone, which was um, a game. It's played like jacks. So there you go. Nice. So uh, what did I write? I wrote Ruby's fake tears. You kill me. So I guess I am not very sympathetic to girl code in this way. We go to town and Marilla at the store, so sweet and friendly and happy to to run into a friend at the grocery store like we all are. But she, oh my, is thoroughly, thoroughly snubbed publicly at the store by Mrs. Bell. Get this line. Oh, call me Marilla, says Marilla, to which Mrs. Bell says, Miss Cuthbert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She says, we urge you to consider homeschooling. You are not a good fit for our group. And I mean, oh my gosh, girls are mean and ladies are mean. They're all mean. Even the storekeeper can't even meet Marilla's eye. Mm -mm. No. And Marilla is totally confused because she has no idea where this came from. Just 24 hours before, these people were very nice and welcoming to her and excited to have them as part of her group. And now they don't think she's a fit. Does that remind you of anything? Because it reminds me of something. Anne, sitting on the floor of the classroom, going, wait, this was all going so well up until a second ago, and I don't know what just happened. Genuine bewilderment on Marilla's part. I have no idea why you're acting this way. Mm -hmm. Makes me feel sad. This whole episode is parallel storyline between Anne going to school and Marilla becoming, you know, a mother in her head, finally. And how awkward and how hard it is for both of those things to happen. So Marilla and Matthew are very worried about the situation on the drive home. Um, This has cut both of them deeper than I think either of them is going to admit to each other. We just get their little reaction shot about what just happened. And then we're back at school for a poetry reading. And we notice Prissy Andrews is not so keen anymore. And I want to call him Mr. Mustard. Because I know that's the real guy. Mr. <laughs> Phillips has crossed a line. Evidently, she didn't realize what it looked like before. And now she does. She had, has she gotten a talking to at home? Has she heard the gossip? Well, she does not want to fuel the fire. She will not meet his eye. And he is confused by this. I thought I was your hero. I thought we had a thing. But no, they don't. No. So that's going to make him just a little more mad, I would think. So Diana, poor Diana, though a great friend and quite loyal, is a sucky reader. (laughs) So it makes me think Mr. Phillips has got to be the worst teacher because how old are these people? And she can't read out loud with, I mean, it is not good. I am embarrassed for her even. And I think Anne is a little shocked, like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know. That was going to be like that. You know, maybe I'm not so far behind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, Diana had told her when they first met that she loved to read. She didn't say she liked to read well or fast. (laughs) True. In the book, she's always reading, right? 
Yeah, in the book, I think her mother even says, Diana's always inside reading. I wish she would do her sewing or go outside and stop all that crazy reading. You know, it was seen as a, I don't know, like a disadvantage for a girl to be a person who liked to read all the time. Yeah. So anyway, evidently she hasn't been reading all the time because she really is bad. So then Anne gets her chance. Finally, something I'm good at, says Anne. And she's very excited. And Diana is too. And she says, I'm so glad for you, Anne. And oh my, does Anne take to this romantic piece of literature. It's uh, Cornwall's The Fisherman. She reads it with all the emotion and feeling and hits every word and overdramatic, but still. Light years better, light years better than the reading that had gone just before. And everyone starts to laugh at first. You know how you laugh when you're uncomfortable. You're like, I don't even know what's happening. We've never seen the like of this before. And so they all start to laugh. But look across the aisle. There are two people who do not laugh. Gilbert Blythe and Charlie Sloan, his seatmate, both are the only ones who appreciate Anne's reading. Josie Pye sucks, too. I mean, she sucks, but also at reading. (laughs) Well, I thought the way that she read is the way a lot of kids read. It's just really monotone. At least, unlike Diana, she got the words out, you know, quickly. It's just very, like, rote, I suppose is a good way to put it. You know, in the cottage were the three bears, and they said, don't Mm -hmm. eat my porridge. Exciting. Yeah, and compared to Anne's version, which was in the last episode, remember how she was reciting poetry for money? and yeah which that was very dramatic. This is like dramatic up two notches, what she's doing in the classroom. Because I really think she's like, yes, I can do this. This is my realm. Let me dazzle. And she like puts it on just a little too heavy. But, you know, that's fine because Gilbert thought she was really invested. That's what he said. She's invested. (laughs) Yeah. So we see Matthew and Marilla come back and Matthew makes a very lame excuse that he's going to go fix the fence, but obviously goes to do something else. Marilla is too preoccupied to even notice the obvious lie that he is going to go fix the fence. That's all I have about that scene. But then we go back to school where Anne is sitting alone outside on a rock trying to eat her lunch as the girls are staring out the window at her. That's uncomfortable. And Anne bewilders Gilbert by not talking to him. And honestly, they have to see. These girls have to see it's not her fault, right? He's trying to be nice, and he does not comprehend what has happened. He's bewildered. He doesn't know she's been told not to talk to him. No, not at all. And it's a girl not talking to him. That's just so not the way his life works, right? Right. So Matthew sneaks over to Mrs. Lynn's to get the dirt, which, of course, she knows. She opens the door. And you can see it on her face. Mrs. Lind knows exactly why Matthew's there. And she knows it all. Fade to black from that scene to the next scene where you're just seeing Matthew and Marilla in shock at the table, having heard the news. And they just don't know what to do. They're just sitting there. And Marilla, interestingly, is worried about what people will say. What will people say? This has gone all around Avonlea. I can't believe she's been spreading that filth. And Matthew is worried that Anne has been put in a position to know all of this in the first place. Matthew changes her mind completely. You're right. A gear has shifted into place. No more worry about what the community is going to say. You know what? You're right. She is a child. She should not know this. And Mm -mm. everyone needs to understand that it's not her fault. Mm-hmm. What I love about this scene is it it was Marilla saying, my mind can be changed. You know, talk about being progressive and open-minded. Right. 
Yeah, that's it right there. I think one thing going in and then somebody says something and then I realize, oh, my way was wrong, which is fine to admit. More people did that, right? Oh, and also it totally shows exactly how wise and how devoted Matthew is to Anne. Well, Marilla puts her company hat on and her determined manner, and she's walking in the beautiful mist. And this scene has really no narrative purpose except to show how determined she is. She doesn't even have the horse and cart. She's walking across an apple orchard um, over to, as we see, Mrs. Andrews's house. And they sort of, honestly, they sort of fight. Mrs. Andrews is cold, does not invite her in, refers to Anne as a trollop. At 13, to which Marilla answers, that child has endured more than we'll ever know. It's a shame progressive parenting doesn't include compassion. Maybe you can muster some up in church on Sunday, to which I say, don't hold your breath. It was implied, you snobby, elitist hypocrite. Really, in church, she's going to be all, yes, I'm such a loving person. And I'm not saying this about all Christians, but in this particular situation, you know, knowing what her inner dialogue is and her actual actions. Well, Marilla's parting shot actually hits. Thank goodness. So you can see it hit a little bit. Marilla (laughs) says to Mrs. Andrews, thank the Lord poor Anne has found safe haven at last. I know I do. And honestly, I think that Mrs. Andrews starts to realize, oh, I have been kind of a bee. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that on her face too, right? right? Like, oh, Oh, she's a person. Anne is a person. And a small person at that. Uh Uh-huh. A small person the same age as my children. Let's show a little compassion. The next thing we're going to see is Matt and Jerry in the barn where they always hang out. And they're talking about school, um, how Matthew had dropped out when he was about Jerry's age. And Jerry asked him if he knows the word (laughs) e-drop. E-drop. And Matthew's like, no, I don't think I do. (laughs) But I never saw Anne's bent for knowing big words. And they're really talking about the word eavesdrop. Although there's no way from the word eavesdrop. Even I was like, what are they talking about? And then I had to go back. and (laughs) I know. Anne is already feeling out of sorts. And Gilbert keeps trying to get her attention in class. The classic scene. He says carrots and pulls her hair. And she smashes him with her slate. We all know that scene. This part is pretty true to the book, too. It did say in the book, Gilbert Blythe wasn't used to putting himself out to have a girl look at him and meeting with failure. She should look at him. You know, that's in the book. So Gilbert is not an angel. He is completely baffled that this person is not worshiping at the altar of Gilbert Blythe like everyone else has. He's so confused. Also, so cute, by the way. Uh And he is not, not good at reading body language. The hair pulling's in the book, too. And they've added, I think, more reasons for her to snap. I have to say, controversial. I like this scene in this series better than I like this scene in the book because I never understood what the heck the word carrots is going to make her freak out and break her slate but there's the pressure she's not good at math everyone hates her she got attacked in the forest you know all this stuff and she can't repair it because this guy won't leave her alone and the girl said not to talk to her and the pressure just built and built and built until you can kind of see how the word carrots might be the straw that broke the camel's back she stands up and just roundhouses him with her slate i agree with you i think this scene is better than any of the adaptations that i've seen and i think i saw them all Okay, because all the other ones, she like picks up the slate and she goes overhead and smashed him on the head with it. But in this scene, she goes sideways. 
which just seems like a more natural move to me to pick it up and go sideways across his head instead of smack dab on the top. It just seemed more realistic again. Also you know? more realistic in all the other adaptations, she's defiant. She hits him with the slate and she looks like, now what? But then in this one, Anne is literally shocked at herself. She can't believe she just did that and realizes how public that was and how she cannot take that back and her slate is broken there's evidence Mm -hmm. she has transgressed she's crossed a line and Mm -hmm. you see that realization on her face where the other adaptations it's it's just like and in the script it says i hit him with the slate because he's a dirtbag that said the word carrots which i'm just like i don't get it but in this one i do i really feel it i really do but i've thrown things you know in anger like fragile things (laughs) and when they break it's like you snap and you're like oh my gosh what did I just do you feel stupid you feel like you acted childishly you feel like you acted impulsively and you feel ridiculous oh there it is again ridiculous for having acted that way and then Mr. Phillips I have to say the word humiliates and humiliates her Um, He has her stand in front of the whole class, the whole class who literally cannot believe what has just happened. Nothing, no show of temper has, (laughs) has ever emerged like this before. They don't even know what to do with this information. And she's standing up there. He calls her Shirley, by the way. And he does know her name because he writes it without an E on purpose. (laughs) I don't know. He writes, Anne Shirley has a very bad temper and has her stand in front of that. And incidentally, Mr. Phillips, your handwriting is worse than that of Moody Spurgeon that you mocked before in this very episode. (laughs) So perhaps a lot less pot calling the kettle black, Mr. Phillips. And more proof that he's not a very good teacher at all. To his credit, Gilbert does try to take the blame. He mans up and he says, I was teasing her, sir. He's kind of horrified at what has just happened. And Josie is delighted because she's horrible. But look at her face. She's delighted that this is happening. Can't wait to Instagram this. Can't wait. (laughs) She's so happy. Uh, And so Mr. Phillips calls everyone to order. There's Anne standing there, unable to process what has just happened. And he sets everyone the sum at 30. Take away six divided by three. And there is way too much chalk scratching for a problem like that. And if the four-year-olds are doing long division, I don't know what this problem is. But what I think is happening is everyone is writing to their seatmate, what the heck is happening? <laughs> yeah. What what just happened? Can you believe that? Blah, blah, blah. It's because she's an orphan. I think everybody is writing notes to their friends because there is way too much. Nobody. Nobody's figuring out the math problem because they already did it in their head. I'm just like eight, <laughs> right? Eight. We can pretty much all just say. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, Anne starts her feet just move her i don't think she means to she starts to leave she's in one of her fugue states she keeps walking mr phillips tries to stop her she disregards him not i'm ignoring you but as if she doesn't hear him which is kind of scary to the people looking she just leaves she gets her hat and she goes away and she runs and she runs and she runs that's how she deals with the epic emotional feelings that she gets sometimes we've seen it before and she ran in the previous episode to the cliff she didn't have any home to run to there was nowhere to go but the scenery and the ocean and the birds but now she runs past the barn she runs through the back door of green gables and straight into morella's arms she runs i say to home mm-hmm She comes into the house and not only does she pass by Matthew, who was 
you know, he was her kindred spirit. He still is, but she knows where she needs to be. And that's with Marilla. And she runs into her arms and Marilla just automatically hugs back. I mean, what sign of a mother is that, right? That's perfect. Cause your kid runs to you crying. Your first instinct is to hug them and to hug them hard. And that's what she does. And she says she understands that Anne had been judged harshly. Now, I think due to the parallel stories, I think she actually says, I know just how you feel. We've been judged harshly. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what she said. So that kind of ties up the notion of, you know, the parallel transformation or failed transformation. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe just a step on the road, maybe a little setback, shall we say. Um, But man, did that bring it together nicely at the end, I thought. Very sentimental. And the parallel storylines are suddenly converged. Loved it. So that brings us to the end of the recap. And so I would like to hear, you get to go first this time. What rating would you give this lovely episode? How many glasses of raspberry cordial out of 10? Um, off the top of my head, <laughs> I would say 7.95. Mm. Yeah, it didn't have the magic again. Uh, but it gets extra points because it was more book-like than the last one. You know, there was a lot of things that people who knew the book could say, aha, that actually happened. So I did like that. The whole mouse part. (laughs) (laughs) I know it was problematic. I have to say, okay, so the mouse part brought us down. And then the fact that the slate scene was so much better and even the book Mm -hmm. brought it right back up to neutral. So those two, in my mind, canceled each other out. There was a great good and a great not good. Yeah, maybe I'm going to up it. I'm just going to go flat eight. (laughs) From 7.95, that man, that is a... (laughs) All right, how about (laughs) 8.05? I gave it an eight also. I liked meeting all the characters. I liked the connections to the book. I liked Mm -hmm. that we're starting to connect to other people in the town also. You know, Mm -hmm. the shopkeeper made an appearance and we've been to a store and I don't know. I just really like that. It's kind of integrating this little world of Green Gables and the little school into the larger community. And I like that a lot, too. So every episode, I'm making a recipe from the Anne of Green Gables cookbook that was written by Maud Montgomery's granddaughter. This week, I chose chocolate caramels. In my head, I I know Ian loves them so much. In my head, I had something imagined and... Just like the title of this episode, What's So Blonde, well, the title is What's So Headstrong is Youth, but the next line, What's So Blind is Inexperience, that was me when I realized that after 30 full minutes of stirring this concoction and waiting for it to cool, it was fudge. I mean, it was chocolate and it was caramel blended together as fudge. And see, I pictured it as the those little square pieces that anchor the nice box of chocolate, you know, the chocolate-covered mm-hmm. square o caramel. <laughs> yeah, I, kind of, I think that's what I was imagining, something, at least that consistency. And it wasn't. And I thought, 30 minutes, that's a long time. What stage is the sugar going to get to, right? Hardball, whatever. No, it was... Not that chewy. It was fudge. That's all I'm going to say. It was delicious. I would call that the Popeye's arm muscle stage. It was. I was just, I was on our Twitter and I was like posting pictures like, this is what I'm doing for you guys. I'm stirring this pot for 30 full minutes. Well, I have a, um, gosh, less interactive 
culinary <laughs> adventure, I was dared to cook and eat parsnips. And I had some doubts as to whether I could even find parsnips, never having even thought about it before. Um, if you're just joining us for episode three, in episode one, Anne has a very obvious whole parsnip on her plate, and we were discussing how we'd never eaten one. So I found some. The Edward Field and Sons Company of Anoka, Minnesota makes a fine parsnip. And so I bought them and julienned them and tossed them with olive oil and salt and garlic and cayenne pepper and put them in the oven to roast, at which my labor is done. I didn't have to stir a thing. I let them be. That's my kind of cooking. So then when I pulled them out, I couldn't believe it. You could serve this dish at any of these small plate restaurants around my neighborhood and people would pay big money for it. It was de-freaking-lightful. <laughs> so I'm okay. going to tell you, and maybe chocolate caramel and fudge aren't my thing. I'm more of a salt person, but the, the flaky salt is what I used. And it holy moly. It was really good. So you know what? I am sorry I ever doubted you, parsnips. <laughs> and just to set the record straight, I have had parsnips in oh. many different recipes throughout my childhood, and I don't like any of them. So anyway, yeah. I really liked it. I did have one other thing I wanted to say. There was a listener named Emily who wrote us a message saying how funny she found it, that we were discussing characters and motivations as if they were real people with real feelings and that historical events were in train and happening and how funny it was that we, like, for example, when we said, Matthew must have some kind of trustworthy face. Why would that maid let him in? And she said, but no, in fact, it says maid lets him in right in the script, which is true. It does. <laughs> and all I can describe that to is um, I had this big theater background in method acting, and maybe that is coming out because I really hope, and I think the actors have thought about the motivations of their characters. It seems like they have a well-rounded um, viewpoint, especially Matthew and Marilla, of what their characters are standing for. So I guess that's what we're coming to. I mean, that's what we're used to doing with historical figures, too, is right. uh, trying to see people's motivations. And so that's why we're doing it. Um, you know, it's the nature well, of our show. Additionally, writers struggle <laughs> struggle with finding the motivation for their characters' actions. You know, they want this certain thing to happen in their storyline, but how do they get there? You know, what is it that this character thinks and does and has in their past that gets them to that point? So it would be nice to know if we were hitting them on the mark, you know, our, what we're seeing is the motivation. Is it the same as Moira Wally Beckett's? That would be mm. nice to know. Yeah, that'd be really great to know. Um, I do want to say that a lot of people wrote to us with their coping strategy of watching this and knowing and loving both the book and the 1980s miniseries. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. They're watching it as fan fiction. And oh, very good. They found it to be very enjoyable. So that's a nice strategy. I like it. So you're, you're familiar old characters now in new scenarios. <laughs> hey, and um, a number of listeners are also disappointed that you didn't read The Blue Castle. Oh, the only Ellen Montgomery book that isn't set in PEI. So I guess I can take that quest like the parsnip quest. I hereby promise to read The Blue Castle. Oh, good for you. There you go. Glad to hear it. Hey, did you have a favorite quote? Uh, I actually said what my favorite quote was uh, before uh, uh, yeah. about the town square and the corsets. What was yours? Mine was when Matthew comes back to Marilla after talking to Rachel, he says, I thought we ought to know Rachel's reliable in the knowing department. <laughs> <laughs> yes she is matthew i called her earlier the ministry of information i think that's yeah, yeah. 
spot on. So we'll provide you some links to assorted books that you can read associated with this show, uh, including Elsie's New Relations and also a link to Miss Abigail's Vintage Advice for Modern Problems. You discovered that app, the library app. Oh, yeah. There is a free app that I have gotten great enjoyment out of. It is. It's a cute little purple girl with a a bun on her head is the logo and it's l-i-b-b-y and you hook your library card up to it and then it includes an e-reader and an audio player integrated within and you can borrow audio audiobooks is what i'm using it for but you can also borrow um regular books from your library for free and it puts them right on your phone and then you can return it and it takes them right off your phone and it is a one-stop shop. And I, I just got done with Emily of New Moon on there and um, have been enjoying lots of audiobooks like um, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, all those comedians. Mm-hmm. I have been um, really liking listening to all their stories, too. But the book I've just been listening to and I finished was, what's it, Cherry Pratchett? What's it called? Witches. Terry Pratchett, which is abroad, which I recommended during the last episode. The last, yeah, during the Marie Laveau episode, which probably makes no sense to you if you didn't listen to that, but maybe you should go back. But I have finished it under Beckett and our friend JD's recommendation. And I loved it. It was everything you guys said it was going to be. You did not oversell it. And I'm going to move on to the rest of the series. So that will do it for this episode. We would absolutely love to hear from new listeners that found us through Anne of Green Gables. If you have transitioned to listening to our historical biographies, which is our usual format, we would love to hear which lady you started with. Yes. You know what? I really like hearing where people listen. And also you can find us on Instagram where if you use the hashtag History Chicks Field Trip for your summer adventures in World's Historical. Everyone can see where you've been. And we did just get a delightful video of the gardens at Versailles. So don't miss that. Go check out History Chicks Field Trip on Instagram. It's kind of like vicarious travel. Perfect. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for episode four. Thanks for listening. Bye. You are-